bull weevils in the cotton patch, can't get them out. And it's all that we have to talk about. We've got good people and their beliefs. What we need for the people is a farm relief. And it looks to me we should all agree. What we need for the people is a farm relief. We can eat sow belly with turnip greens. But we sure do have to plan and scheme. We all start working at the break of day. Well, hello. And we don't get Welcome and we don't to get the American and Writers 100 Pages of Time podcast. My podcast where I work my way through the Library of America 100 Pages at a Time, looking at different authors, sometimes exhaustively, sometimes uh, a volume here and a volume there. Um, I've just, I'm coming to the end here. Of a, of a series that I think 14 episodes altogether, looking at the works of, of James Adji. Um, he's kind of a well-known writer in literary circles, I guess, literature classes, things like that. He's, he's not maybe the most, he's like a household name, the way some of the other authors we've looked at in this podcast are. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to look at a, a mixture, a, a diversity of different types of authors. And, and so this one was challenging for me, this series. Um, but it's, it's been interesting, uh, and, and had some nice moments. So thanks for bearing with me on this as I struggle with, with James Adji. Um, you know, if anyone has any suggestions of which volumes I should look up next, let me know. I, uh, I, I'll tell you at the end of the episode what's coming up. So to wrap up this series, we're going to look at four shorter works by, by Adji. Uh, the first is really a novella. Um, called The Morning Watch, and then look at three of his short stories. So let's, the longest of these is The Morning Watch, 60 pages. Um, so I guess it kind of qualifies as a novella. This is very Joycean. I, I was having kind of flashbacks of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. If you remember that chapter in that book where uh, Stephen is like hearing hellfire from the pulpit and having his own religious experience. I mean, a lot of that book is about growing up in religion and then kind of falling away from religion, right? Um, it's worth reading again. Maybe maybe I should... He's not an American writer, though, so it won't be on this podcast that I'll look at him, but maybe it's worth checking out again. It's been a while since I picked up Joyce. Um, but it, you kind of have flashbacks of that when you read this, because it's all about this a young person in a boarding school having like an intensely religious experience and thinking a lot about it and, and having kind of religious delusions of grandeur, um, which Stephen also had uh, in that book. Um, so <clears throat> The Morning Watch. So it's in three little chapters. Uh, the longest of these is the second chapter, which is a prolonged kind of meditation on religion. Uh, I'm not going to go through this like page by page or, or scene by scene, really. I'll just kind of give you the, the, the gist of what's going on here. Um, so, he, as the story begins, we're given, like, this is set during Lent, right? So, on our character's mind, he's like 12, 13, something like that. Um, on his mind is, is the Garden of Gethsemane. Obviously, it's called the Morning Watch, right? So... You know, it's about staying up and praying with Jesus, right? That's the whole thing. And so at this boarding school, these children are asked to do these half-hour shifts praying during Lent. So that he has to get up for their shifts, and different people have to get up at different times. So it's going to be a constant vigil all night. I think it's like a ritual that's supposed to honor that event in the Bible, 
course, as you, as you know, the, the disciples fail to stay up and pray with Jesus throughout the night. And, and that shows their failings and their, their humanity and all that. Whatever. And then we also get the isolation of Christ. I mean, I'm not a theologian, though, so that's, that's how I remember that story being talked about. Um, now, he has our character, our narrator here, Richard is his name, has kind of a religious delusions of grandeur, I really do think. He, he thinks of himself as like one of Jesus' disciples, or he thinks of himself, you know, as, as being almost saint-like at various times. And I don't know if Adji had those thoughts. Obviously, people do often have these experiences when they're praying, when they're, when they're young, especially if they're raised in the church, where they think they're a greater... They're, they don't have that humility of, uh, that comes with age. And that, that lack of humil humility of young people combined with faith can create these sort of ideas. I think that's what's going on here. So there's a lot about guilt and the emergence of guilt, but there's also a lot about like this religious arrogance of youth, I, I think, in this, this story. Um, anyways, the story begins with this guy, the, like the priest or some, some head of the church or headmaster or someone going around and waking up these boys for their shifts of the morning watch. And so Richard's at that four. Uh, and so he's, it's like 345 and they're saying, ah, you gotta get up. Um, now Richard's feeling this intense guilt, uh, during Lent. Uh, he, we get this for instance, it was something like the feeling of his birthday and of Christmas and, and of Easter. And it was still more like the feeling he now seldom and faintly recalled during the morning, just after he learned of his father's death and during the day he was buried. But it was not really like any of those or anything else except itself. These were the hours of our Lord's deepest passion. For almost 40 days now, this feeling had grown and deepened, not without interruption, for he had not managed perfectly to keep either his public or secret Lenten rules. Yet he had been sufficiently earnest and faithful and sufficiently grieved in his failures that the growth had been deeper and more cumulative and more rewarding than he had ever known before. Quote. So there's some level of, of, of guilt, and let's say it's a very simple guilt, just not keeping up with his rituals, but he makes up for this with this arrogance about his faith and this kind of spiritual quest he's on and his maturation. And this leads him to think maybe he could be a saint or something. So he goes to the chapel. Part two, the longest part of the book. It really is a little book. The largest part of, this, of the novella. 40 pages out of 60. Is this is this uh, ritual itself, this praying, where he's on his knees praying, and of course he's supposed to do it for a half hour, but he ends up like no one leaves at four thirty, so he stays and he ends up staying till like for the four thirty shift as well, not leave until five. And there's some other boys there, um, and but all we get then is like for an hour, and I suppose if you were to read this out loud, it would take about an hour, and that's about how long it is in in the in the, the in the novel itself it's all re religious um experiences i mean i think this is the kind of book that like william james you know would have had fun with had they been able to read it at the time because that's that's what it's about it's about all these religious experiences people have when praying the thoughts that go into their head sometimes the queer thoughts sometimes the the stupid thoughts sometimes the arrogant thoughts sometimes the overly guilty thoughts um I mean, it's even like 
Like, listen to this. Soul of Christ sanctify me, he prayed silently. Blood of Christ save me. But he was saying it mechanically and too fast. Slowly now, thinking carefully of each word, he began again. Soul of Christ sanctify me. Make me holy. Absolve me from all spot of sin. Body of Christ save me. Save me. The body which has already begun to suffer and die. He braced his mind. Blood of Christ inebriate me. Carefully as he tried, he could not avoid it. Inebriate meant just plain drunkard or meant a drunken person, especially habitual drunkard. And it was used here. It meant to make drunk, to intoxicate. And inebriety meant drunkenness or the habit of drunkenness. He had been fond of the word for a long time before he knew or realized that he did not know its meaning, which, of course, be simply what the blood of Christ might most naturally be expected to do. But what would that be? It sounded as nice as inebriate. And, and then he goes on how he looked up the word and stuff. But a lot of this stuff goes on in these 40 pages. A lot of these different prayers that kind of go off the rails in his mind. It's kind of fun, I, I think. I actually like this better than Death in the Family, just as an extended stream of consciousness, if you like that extended stream of consciousness stuff. Not everyone does. It's not really my favorite, to be honest. But um, it, This is kind of an, an experience that's, I think, worth having. So he, he kind of does, there's a plot here, as he sort of comes to realize his own arrogance, his own um, presumptions about religion, his own limitations and failings, and all that. It's a good Lent story. It's a good, it's a good uh, Easter story in that sense. Now in part three, he goes out with these friends, and like he should be going back for, to sleep, you know, because classes begin later or something. Um, but... Instead, he goes out with these other boys. I don't know if they're really his friends. You know, don't seem to be really good friends, but they're the people he's hanging out with, right? And they go swimming. They, they take off their clothes and kind of go swimming. And eventually, they run into the snake, and the boys kill the snake. And there's a debate about taking it as a souvenir or not, and they end up not. But, but Richard ends up taking this locust um, shell, I guess. I guess like a molting, right? Well, those locusts grow, they, they molt the old exoskeleton. So he finds one of those and he takes that with him. And that's, that's basically the story. But it's all about the internal. Not, not, not much happens, obviously. But it's all about the internal um, guilt. And the final things he does, like skipping out of school, breaking the boarding school's rules with these boys is, of course, also a sin and, and all that. But... Um, I guess someone could have a lot of fun with like the symbolism of of everything going on in the morning watch, the symbolism of the locust or the snake or or the church or or. or but I, I think most people would want to read this just for the meditation on the religious experience, and I think that's maybe the most the funnest thing about this particular um, little book. So that's all I'm going to say about the morning watch. I was originally going to do a whole episode on it, but I ended up not having too much to say about it except i actually do recommend it i think it's 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 short it only takes like an hour or so to read and it's fun unless you unless you really hate religion or not interested at all in religious experiences then don't um death in the desert next now this is actually my favorite i think of all the stories and all these everything in this book except maybe some parts of let us now praise famous men it's a nice Really compelling story. It's the kind of story I think they teach in, on, like, an undergraduate literature classes because it's 
by a famous writer, a good writer. It's accessible. It's sharp. It's got a good moral theme. It deals with race, class, things like that. And it's just a nice little sharp story. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've come across it uh, in an anthology of stories. I remember it from somewhere, not reading it myself. I remember coming across this somewhere. I don't remember where. Maybe it was high school. So this was originally written for the Harvard Advocate in 1930. Maybe 1931. Let me see. 1930. October 1930, Harvard Advocate. Um, so we have a bunch of bums, like... Uh, Standing in line at the, you know, the highway off-ramp waiting for, for cars to pick them up during the Depression, whatever. And he's got like a, the main character, the, the narrator's got this, it's, it's told in first person, I think, yeah. Uh, he's got this abscess, or he's got a boil yeah he's got a boil in his ear that's what it was a big boil that's like hurting his ears like super painful like he can barely function so he needs this ride and he's just like a traveling worker or whatever he finally gets picked up by a couple a couple in a buick and there's some really great stream of consciousness here as well where you know he's got this pain and he's sitting in this awkward position just to try to minimize the pain He's having this conversation with these people. He's kind of dissecting them, trying to understand them. You know, he kind of has different visions of what they are. Um, you know, now the big thing in the story, the important thing in the story that happens is they run into this African-American who's desperate for a ride, more desperate than our narrator was. Like he's dying. <laughs> he's really dying. And the, the title is Death in the Desert. So the implication is that he does die because they don't pick him up. Now, we don't actually see that or know that, but it's, it's pretty heavily suggested that if they don't pick this guy up, he's going to die. And he doesn't. And the justification of the driver, the man, is like, well, we already got this guy, right? Now, really, it's because he, he's racist as fuck. Um, and the, the couple is. I think the couple maybe was, the woman was more willing to let him in. That kind of parallels death in the family too, where the woman is the less racist person or the person who maybe confronts racism more directly. Uh, you know, they say, you know, I'm not racist, but, right, I'm not an N-word lover, he says, but they justify not picking him up. And our narrator is put in this really weird position where, on the one hand, he knows that even if he wasn't there, this man wouldn't have been picked up by this couple, and he probably would have died anyways. So it doesn't change anything. But the fact that he gets used by this racist man to be the justification about why he can't pick him up, saying, well, we don't have room. And that is, I think, kind of the, the, the really awkward experience of it all, the, the awkward uh the, the, the kind of the, the social the, the social interaction here is really weird because he's as the passenger is not in a position to really say you should pick him up right he's also a guest in the car and I think that the the narrator would have advocated for it but doesn't think he's in his place to do it and more importantly the I think the the affront here is the driver justifying it based on the the 
blaming essentially the, the the other the person they picked up the narrator for why they couldn't pick up this black man when that's obviously not the reason why he's doing it so it's kind of socially complex that way and and kind of interesting um the next they that soul and sorrow shall reap uh, also written in the 30s i think yeah 1931 also for the harvard advocate one year later this one is it's kind of a fun story too i i remember liking this one I didn't really review it very carefully. I read it weeks ago. It also deals with kind of these marginalized people. In this case, it's a boarding house. And so our our main character is living in this boarding house with other boarders. And we get, he's a day laborer, right? So he takes on different jobs, pays for his room and board in the boarding house. And it's, it's kind of a story like that. And... Really what happens, though, is there's one guy that works, I think he works in the boarding house, but he's gay and he kind of, he, he has an attraction for our, our character, our, our main character. And it's not really addressed until it's like he sits on it for a day or two and then later on he actually moves on it. And anyways, let's read it. Let's read the section like where it happens. The old, uh, let's have a cigarette, said Grafton, and offered one to Mr. Stevens. The old gentleman refused politely and added that he had never touched tobacco in any form. To Grafton's silence, he replied that it had been a hot day, but a handsome one. That was true, I said. I was watching the sky. The sunset was unusual. Night was rising from east and south and north like an immense black hood. Its edge was apparent against the day. Across the world from us, there was an edge of dawn and freshness. There, Greece shivered into light. But over the broadness of the sea and plain sharp mountains and thistled lights of cities, enormously, enormous shadows prevailed, and over us the shadow hung. This is an instant I saw and pitied the nine gathered in the house. So I'll go on with the quote, but this is just a great moment. I mean, if this was a, a, a romance story, I mean, this is a great setup for, for like the kiss or the, the touch or the, the moment that's going to kind of bring the two characters together. But uh, it's two men, right? It's an old man and, and a young man. Going on, the old gentleman's arm slipped around my shoulder, and as he openly fondled me, he said that we were all one big family, and that Grafton must feel perfectly at home, perfectly at home. I did nothing and said nothing. There was nothing to do or say. Grafton stood a little away from me, and I saw amazement, pierced, piercing his stupidity and scorn and incredulity. The old man babbled on, and I watched them both and waited. His cheek was twitching like a, like a snake kilt before sundown. His eyes were glassy and bright with lust. I felt his body trembling and saw the trembling as, chattering inanely, he swung me towards Grafton, slid an arm around me and called us his fine boys, his fine boys. And I saw the fine boy stand quietly, his eyes narrowing, his jaw muscles shifting and freezing while a vein grew full and hard and sprawled crooked on the old gentleman's forehead. Grafton stood in quiet and then drew away with a flat palm struck across his mouth, struck across the mouth of the old man who, Mouth flashing blood for incidents assumed in all, all amazement. The Jeffrey sprang stance with, with amazement gone raised supplicating tiny hands like a Muslim mole. While face all blood and streaming tears, he shrank among the sorrowing flowers of mourning, bitterly crying and with dependent hands fluttering before head. So that's what happens. And then he eventually moves, moves out. He pays, pays up and, and, and moves away and moves out of that boarding house. But actually, I, I guess I don't remember so many de as many details as I as I thought I remember. 
I remember this story had some kind of a had some impact on me. I think there's like a religious undertone too about about charity and whether you know the, the his interaction with this family and and this this man who's obviously conflicted and and, and struggling with his sexuality and things. So, um, anyways, the final one, the final story in, in this collection is a mother's tale. This was written 20 years later, 1952, in Harper's Bazaar. And it's a it's an allegory, um, kind of a kind of a beast fable, uh, like a, like something from Grimm or or Hans Christian Andersen or something, and it's a cow talking to her children, uh, a son and and like a male a male calf and a and a female calf. So you, she's like educating them on the world, and and so. At some point, they're told they'll be they're going to go on a long journey, right? They're going to go on a, to a rail car. I mean, there's like weird Holocaust imagery here too, and this is of course written post Holocaust. So I don't know if that was in Angie's mind. I don't know if he was a vegetarian. I, I don't think he is. I think it's just about the brutality of life and the brutality of existence. Um, but. The kids hear about this adventure that that the cows go on. They're taken away on this great adventure, and they want to go. They, it's kind of it seems to them a great adventure. But the mother, who's obviously someone who didn't go, it's a one way trip, right? Uh, says no. You actually want to stay. Um, the strongest, the smartest, they can stay, and it's safe there. Um, but it's not clear because it is a one way trip, right? To go, I, I don't know. If this is a metaphor for life, right? We all kick off eventually. We all die, and and so we're all on that one-way trip. We're all going to get on that train at some point. We're all on that one-way trip. Um. But so now she tells the story to them about the one that comes back, right? It's kind of a a mythical, and he's able to tell the story of what happens to them. On this trip. So he's the one person who comes back, right? So obviously if it's death, no one comes back from that. But, but you know, for the story to work, you need someone to come back. So there's that one cow that returned from the voyage. And there's all sort of weird mythology about, like, what the, what this man, this one who returned is. Was it a man dressed up? Here, where is it? Um. Some say that with his naked face and his savage eyes and that beard and the hide lying off his bare shoulders like shabby clothing, he looked almost human. But others feel this is an irreverence even to think. And others, that is a poor compliment to pay to one who's told us. At such cost to himself, the ultimate purpose of man. Some did not believe he had ever come from our ranch in the first place. And of course, he was so different from us in experience and even in his voice and so changed from what he might ever have looked or sounded like before that nobody could recognize him for sure though they were sure they did others suspected that he had been sent among us with the story for some mis uh, mischievous and cruel purpose and the fact that they could not all imagine what this purpose might be made them naturally all the more suspicious some believe he was actually a man trying and then too successfully they say to disguise himself as one of us right but he comes back as this jerry is this jeremiah right trying to warn them about what's there and he tells the story and it's all in italics here the the, the one who comes back um 
lessons. He's like, tell them, believe he's like a prophet. Um, and part of his message is, quote, all who are put on the range are put on the trains. All who are put on trains meet with the man with the hammer. All who stay home are kept there to breed others to go into the range and so betray themselves and their kind and their children forever. We are brought into this life only to be victims and there's no other way for us unless we save ourselves. Never be taken, never be driven. Let those who can kill man, let those who cannot avoid him. Um, even going farther, saying we should kill the young ones rather than subject them to this. Um, bear no young, refuse to breed and all that. But it's it's an amazing story and it can, it can be applied to so many different things like uh, the this guy's the this returning cow is a political radical warning about the evils of capitalism or the evils of slavery or the evils of whatever you know just system we want to talk about or uh you could just straight up take it about the argument for vegetarianism but it's it's about the futility of life even i mean if you take this as a metaphor for life the answer is really to stop the cycle to stop breeding, to stop bringing new generations into this horrible world. I don't agree with that. It's certainly a little bit too pessimistic for my taste. But I love this story. I love the use of uh, a beast fable. I love the, the horror of it. I love the, the mystery. I love the, the how we have this kind of vernacular tradition being passed down about the one who returned and the story and, and, and just the metaphor of the of the train, you know, in the post Treblinka world, I think is obviously compelling. Again, I don't know if that was on Angie's mind, but you know, it's really dark and creepy and it's a good fable. And, and I, I enjoyed reading that one. So, um, yeah, that does it. That does it for James Adji. Um, it's been a, a tough one. It's been a struggle for me, but I have, um, enjoyed it, uh, from time to time. So let me know what you think of these stories. I, I skimmed through some of them pretty quickly, but I think all four of these are kind of worth just checking out if if you want. I, I'd skip death in the family unless you really want to kind of buy yourself some headaches and some some work. Uh, these four stories are, are are quick reads and and I think they're worth it. What you get out of them is 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 what you put in. So what's coming up next? Um, well, I got three more volumes. I was able to get some book shipped to me from Taiwan. I still haven't been able to return because of COVID. It's been a pretty dark time for me, actually. Uh, lose my cat. Haven't been able to see my family. It's starting to work again and, you know, all the headaches of that. It's been a rough, rough uh, summer and early autumn for me. Um, but I was able to get some Library of America books. That's where I got the Adji stuff from in that shipment. And, and what I also have is uh, Sinclair Lewis, one volume of his writings, Aerosmith's in it. I have uh, one volume of Henry James, the first volume published by the Library of America of James's writing, which is his first five or six novels. I think it's his first six novels. So you got the Europeans, the Americans, Watch and Ward, uh, the Roderick, whatever one. Uh, so I could do Henry James. Uh, actually, I already read one of those novels. I've never read James much, except like Turn of the Screw. Um, he always seemed kind of bougie to me, um, but I'm going to take him on, start to. i gotta, I got to grapple with James at some point, right? I, I grappled with his brother, William James, who I love. But Henry James, 
Never really was never really inspired to go read him much. And then I have Aldo Leopold. I'm thinking I'm going to do Aldo Leopold first, just because I've been doing nonfiction for a while, and I might as well stick with that until I. I guess I was just looking at fiction the last few episodes, but by and large, I've been kind of in the nonfiction realm, and maybe finish that up. And I think it's it's autumn, so maybe it's a good time to think about the changing of the seasons and the ecology. And I love Sand County Almanac. It's been a couple years since I read it, so it's I'm due to. So I'm thinking. I'm going to go through the volume of Aldo Leopold next. So that's what you can look forward to. Unless I change my mind last minute uh, over the week when I'm reading. That's that's kind of the schedule I've been on. I've been reading during the week and recording on the weekends. Um, so I'll be I'll be reading probably Aldo Leopold over the over the weekend. I think that'll be seven or eight more episodes. Um, Sand calling the almanac for two. And then we got all his other conservation writings. So we'll kind of look at Sand Caldy Almanac first, which would be like the culmination of his career. That was published posthumously, like Death in the Family was. So that's kind of the his final words. And then we we're able to then step back to his look at his journals, his other conservation writings from the start of his career. Because Aldo Leopold is really someone whose views on ecology changed over time. So um, that'll be our approach with him. Um, so really excited for that. I haven't done any colleges yet. I've been meaning to, you know, John Muir, Bartram, uh, Autobahn, Leopold. Um, and there's some others more recently published also doing ecology stuff. So there's been some really good stuff published by the Life of America on both historical nature writing and, and more contemporary nature writing. So, um, yeah, maybe it's about time to get into it. Like I said, I'm trying to be diverse with this series um, of different genres and fields and interests. So that's it. Uh, that's it. That's done. We're done with Adji. So let me know what you think about Adji. Any final thoughts about him? Let me know. If you have any suggestions of future volumes that I may want to purchase, uh, I may I may come to that point. If if I can't get to Taiwan over Spring Festival, I either I just focus on the Lovecraft. Which I got a lot of stuff to do with Lovecraft before I'm done, um, but that's not endless either. I don't have a, I don't think I have a full nine months of stuff until the end of the school year. Uh, so if I don't get to Taiwan, I'll go mad probably. But um, I might run out of books before I go mad, and, and and then what to do with this podcast? I don't know. I think I, I think the Lovecraft will be done by then. Um, anyways. That's that's scheduling. That's that's my problem, not yours. Uh, send me an email though. Hundred pages cast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, thanks, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time with probably ninety percent chance. To me, we should uh, all agree. What we need for the people is the farm relief. Too high in the market, too low. We ask for credit and they all say no. We got good people and they all know well what the poor old...